So in James chapter 5, James is now beginning to land the plane, as we've been saying, of his letter. And he does something that's very, very common in New Testament letters, uh, is he ends by telling the people and reminding the people, reminding the Bible readers, the people he originally wrote to and would be us, we're reading the Bible tonight, uh, to pray. Unfortunately, uh, the, the debate over physical healing has confused and taken the joy out of this section because in the next six verses, he mentions prayer in every single verse. So what does that tell us that the, that the theme is? The theme is prayer. But again, we are very uh, overly concerned with physical healing. And when you get too overly concerned, it takes the joy out of what I think James is trying to do. But anyway, the, the title of tonight's message is Prayer and Healing, Part 1. Prayer and Healing, Part 1. Uh, as he closes... James is calling us to pray in every situation of life. That's why six verses, six mentions, lots of emphasis on prayer. And let's just start with where we're going to begin tonight. In, in life, we all experience suffering, don't we? We all experience sorrow. We all experience sickness. We all experience sin. Uh, but also, uh, we experience, if you're a follower of Jesus, you experience salvation. We all, follower of Jesus or not, if you're not, we're glad that you're with us here tonight. We do generally experience some successes in life, not always, successes and failures. And we even have, you know, once in a while we crack a smile. I'm not seeing nearly as many smiles in the past year that I've seen before. Not as much laughter as I've seen before, but... Some of us are out there trying to keep the world uh, smiling and laughing some, and so let's, let's join in that. So when do we pray? Well, I'm not going to ask you when you pray. I'm going to ask you when does James say that we pray? He says that we pray in good times and bad, in joy and sorrow, at work and at play. But it's easy to forget that, isn't it? Because we tend to only pray when we are in need. Let me give you a very, very silly, silly example. Many of you know that many years ago, when I became a Christian, I owned a trucking company. Well, I had several trucks, and I had this one real piece of junk truck. And because I wanted the drivers to stay with me, because I couldn't pay them very much, uh, I, I drove the piece of junk truck. And, and, and it, was always, it was always having trouble. And um, every time I made a delivery, I'd just become a Christian. And every time I made a delivery, I would praise God. I'd be like, God, thank you so much. I get that delivery off the truck. And then I saved up enough money for a down payment to get rid of the junker and get a new truck. And so I remember getting into that new truck I was, uh, for those of you who know the area, I, I was on, uh, on Lyndhurst Avenue uh, over in Lyndhurst, or Orient Way over in Lyndhurst, and I'm driving towards Route 3, and I'm just, you, know, you remember these things a long time ago, and I'm just praising God for this new truck. But guess what I stopped doing after that? I stopped praising God for every delivery. 
because I just assumed my new truck would get me there. Not good, not good. And so we want to pray in all things. Who's James going to tell us to pray? Individuals. We should all individually pray. Uh, church leaders, he's going to talk about praying with the sick. Friends, we are to pray with one another, uh, other fellow Christians. And he talks about righteous men and women. They are to pray righteous in God's sight because of the grace of God, not because we are righteous in and of ourselves. In other words, all people who would say that they are the people of God are to pray. So verse 13 begins a question, begins a question and short answer format. And I got to tell you something very interesting. Verse 14 and 15 just, just overrides this passage. And verse 13 is absolutely beautiful. It's really beautiful. In fact, fact, part of me was like, why don't I just do a message on verse 13 and, and, and not worry about the rest? He says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Some versions say happy. Let him sing psalms. Some, song, some versions say let him sing praise or sing songs of praise. So he begins, is any one of you, anyone among you suffering? Another version says, are any one among you in trouble? Let him pray. Now, prayer is talking to God. But yet you wonder how, James, if he was here, we'd say, James, how are we supposed to pray when we are suffering? How are we supposed to pray when we are in trouble? Well, if we link it to the last section we're in, he might say, why don't you pray like one of the prophets? Have patience when you pray. But don't resign yourself to, oh, well, this is the way it's going to be. Have like the prophets perseverance when you pray. But he probably would also add, remember this, don't be grumbling. Don't be complaining. Nor in the midst of your suffering should you make false promises that you can't keep. Maybe sometimes you're just going to have to say, you know, at this point in time in my life, I'm just going to have to say no. No is a very powerful word. To be honest, this is probably not the way most of us pray, is it? We're just like, help, fix this thing. Come on, get with it, God. Typically, we pray for the removal of the trial, not what the trial might produce in us. We pray for pain relief. And I would say that all of that is okay as long as it does not become an obsession. When our prayers or our troubles for our prayers, our, our prayers for our troubles become an obsession, it often becomes all we think about. And if we're not careful, it produces distrust. 
distrust in the goodness of God. Maybe he's not as good as I thought he was. And it also produces uh, a goodness in people. I, I met, so I was on the line yesterday and was talking with this woman. And, and she said, you know, um, people just can't be happy for you, can they? It was so weird. I was like, I didn't tell her I was a pastor or anything. I just kind of blurted it out. And I was like... Yeah, I'm preaching on that. Uh, so that's just, you know, that, that's just the way sometimes people are. You know people like this. Maybe you've become like this. You're a follower of Jesus, but in your obsession for relief of pain or removal of the trial, your spirit has become dull. You're, you're just spiritually dull. And, and, and your minds really struggle with the scriptures. Your mind's not exploding with the scriptures. Your mind is, is dull. And, and, and the application of the word of God in your life becomes very, very difficult for you. To me, this, this verse kind of has a feeling that James is kind of trying to give to us. Something sort of like this, like he would say to us, friends, loved ones, brothers, sisters, you know that life is full of ups and downs. So it's very important you know how to deal with them. You need to be prepared for the ups and downs of life because if you are prepared, you will know what to do. That's why I'll often say to people, make God your default in good times, in all times, in boring times, so he becomes your default in bad times. In, in chapter 1, in the beginning of um, chapter 5 as well, James encouraged us to have a right heart. He encouraged us to have a divine perspective on life. Don't limit yourself to just this, to just you know, tunnel vision. You only see what's going on now. Understand that God has a much wider view and a much wider plan for you. In other words, the Lord wants us to endure trials on his timetable, not ours, with a faith and a trust combined with that time that's going to result in godly growth and a godly spirit in the process. Now, is that, you might say, is that possible in physical pain, in spiritual struggles, in financial difficulty, in relational stress, in personal trouble. Apparently so. <laughs> Apparently James feels that it is. Yet I want to point out something to you, and, and, and sometimes our Bible translations, when you go from one language to the next, it, it, they can be a bit misleading, not deliberately misleading, but sometimes our Bible translations can be a bit misleading. And I think it is here. It says, if you are suffering, if, you, if anyone among you is suffering or in trouble, let him pray. 
It's really not what it says. It says, let him keep on praying. Don't stop. Don't give up. Prayer is firing the winning shot. It is, if you will, the arrow of God that, that is aimed at the heart of God and comes back to our own heart. Prayer is not some massive resignation that things will never change. Sometimes people go, well, all, I guess all we can do is pray. No, 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 no. Pray is, prayer is where we start. Often it's interesting when things are going bad, when we are in trouble, when we're in suffering. Our first impulse is to fight. But have you learned that fighting can lead to more trouble? That fighting can lead to persecution from people? And as even some people are finding out these days, that fighting can lead to even a conflict with the government. James says, go to the Lord first. Tell him what's going on and ask for his help. Now, this is always an interesting thing because people say, well, why would I tell God what's going on? Doesn't he know? Well, you know, I always like to talk about little Noah James, my grandson. He was crying about something, and, and I pulled him up on my lap, and I had a feeling what it was, and I was right. But I said, tell Grandpa what it is. Tell Pops what it is. And he's trying to tell me. He's not even three yet, sort of speaking in tongues to me. We'll talk about that later. But, you know, sometimes when kids get older, you say to them, tell me what is going on. For us, though, it's not a matter of just telling God what's going on and asking for his help. When we do that, he has a tendency to show us something. He has a tendency to show us where we're right and where we're wrong so we can be more godly in the process. Obviously, if we don't, if we don't seek God in our trouble and he doesn't put the brakes on some of our trouble, much more of our trouble will be self-inflicted. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't a lot of our trouble self-inflicted? Don't we do it ourselves? And how much of it, if we're honest, could we trace to a lack of prayer? Next, James moves us completely from suffering and trouble to the other extreme. And I think we can assume that he's also talking about everything in between. Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone happy? Another version says, let him sing psalms, sing songs. So from praying or speaking to God, right, in trouble, James moves to singing to God. That's far from the obligatory, oh, thank you for that, God. Good one. Good job, God. No, he's like, when, when you are happy, when you are overjoyed, when you are cheerful, thank God, sing to him. Yet, I'm not so sure this is just when things are going well. I think this also applies to a peace of mind that you might have. When things are going bad, and then you pray to God, and you get that sensation of, it's going to be okay. And it's a peace of mind. It's, it's a contentment. 
And then he says, be cheerful, be happy, sing praises to God. This is the follower of Jesus who can be in good spirits in tough times as well as in good times. Why? Because prayer has an interesting way of building trust in God. And I've learned this through the years and continue to learn this. When my confidence level in God is high, we can move mountains. And it might not be the mountain you wanted to originally have moved, but it'll be the mountain of your heart from from sorrow sometimes to gladness or at least great confidence. Let's be honest. I don't think I'm the only one who would say this. We need to be reminded more to thank God than we do to call upon him in times of trouble. So often we're in times of trouble. Oh, God fixed this. God fixes it. And before we even have time to thank him, another trouble comes along. That's why it's probably a good idea. I do not do enough of this, but it's a good idea to to keep a record of answers to prayer. Once again, our translations may mislead us when it says let, right? Um, It kind of carries the idea, well, you know, if some guy's at a prayer meeting, let him praise the Lord if he wants to. I think a better way to say it is must. Or perhaps in our thinking, this is what we should be doing. This is how we should be praying. So if we or people we know are suffering, keep on praying. And when God is blessing us or people we know, keep on singing. Keep on being full of joy. Now, if you read ahead, I know that you want to get to verse 14 and 15. Yet I'm going to be honest with you for a second. I think to miss verse 13 is to miss much of the Christian life. I mean, you really, really do miss a lot. Over the years, I have seen many people leave the faith, sadly. I've seen many people disqualify themselves from ministry because of their reaction to suffering, because of their reaction to pain, because of their reaction to trouble, because of their reaction because things were not going the way they wanted them to. But it doesn't happen usually quickly. It's often quite subtle. It begins with leaving the things of God that he has given us to strengthen us as we begin to move away from the spiritual disciplines of prayer and and the word of God and and the gathering together of God's people. What we don't realize is that such such a departure can very subtly lead to an indifference towards God. And an indifference towards God can very easily lead to a rebellion towards God. 
Randolph Tasker put it this way. He said, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it, certainly, it most certainly can transform it. That is true. It certainly can't transform your heart. Well, let's flip the coin over. If we have success, or, or just even success in the world's eyes, when things are going very, very well, if we're not singing God's praises, can't that easily and often lead to arrogant confidence? Once we start we, that, to think that we can handle things, once we start to think we can know best, we're on our way out of the faith. Or as they say down south, we might find ourselves on the way to the woodshed. <laughs> God may have to teach us a hard, hard lesson. So what does the Holy Spirit do or tell us through James here in verse 13. And this is why I think this is such an important part of the Christian life. He tells us that God is and that God wants to be involved in every aspect of your life, in every aspect of my life, from deep sorrow to great joy and everything in between. But God the Holy Spirit, remember he is part of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit doesn't want us just to know it. I mean, it's one thing to know it in your head. He wants us to experience the presence of God in all aspects of life. He wants us to experience the goodness of the will of God whether it might be difficulty or better times. He wants us to experience the goodness of the will of God in all aspects of life with real trusting faith. I kind of just want to end there. <laughs> or go home and write just a little bit, you know, change some things and write a little bit longer message, man, because I love that verse. I love that verse. But verse 14 and 15 might be why you're watching tonight or this week or whenever you're watching takes us to two of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, there's a lot of controversy here, and I think the controversy has its basis in the divisions within the church over spiritual gifts. Now, when we talk about spiritual gifts, and I want to talk about them some tonight because we haven't really talked about them in a long time since we were in, in 1 Corinthians. A lot of times when you talk about spiritual gifts or this group believes this, the discussion breaks down because within that group, there are a variety of differences. 
there are a variety of beliefs. So even if you get the groups right, it makes the groups hard to define. But one thing I will tell you, it, it's, it's really good to understand some things about some groups before you start talking about them. You really have to learn some things about them. I know sometimes you'll hear me say, well, Pastor Jim, you come down on a lot of people that are, you, you say are shaving the gospel. And I'll go, yes, because I read them and I listen to them. That's the only way I know. And so the only way you can know about such things is you have to, you have to read things. You have to listen to things. Or, you know, I would even say, don't trust me because I'm telling you, there are so many combinations within so many different groups. And what's really sad is there are so many extremes. And I, I rarely find the extremes is where we want to be. So let's just talk about where really a lot of this stuff began. Now, if you want to be really snarky, you'll say, well, it begins in the Bible, and I don't disagree with you. But in terms of the real divisions that we know here in this country, if you're outside of America, this is really where a lot of this stuff began. And uh, I'm talking about where it began in the United States. And a lot of it has been exported now as some of these groups are some of the fastest growing and the fastest growing groups in the world. So let's talk about uh, three waves, we'll call it. You surfers are like that. Let's talk about three waves. The first wave starts a bit be before 1900, but typically so associated with the early 1900s. And those are called the Pentecostals. Pentecostals. Uh, most people think it began with this thing called the Azusa Street R Revival out in uh, California, but more people trace it to Topeka, Kansas, of all places, Topeka, Kansas. And then it went to this Azusa Street re revival in California. And there was the uh, return of, although some people said that that wasn't really the return of, but it was just more widely known of, of speaking in tongues and the interpretation of speaking in tongues. Now, some people say it's another language. Some people say that it is uh, just your own prayer language. We're not here to talk about speaking in tongues. And we also within that group was a big move towards holiness, which would really take them back a couple centuries to John Wesley because he was big in the holiness movement. One of the downsides, I think, in that movement is that, that there became this, holiness is a good thing, don't get me wrong. But sometimes people take holiness to some externals that might not be good. And then if you fail at some of those externals, they would maybe say you could lose your salvation. But, but that was, that was a, a, a widely known group, uh, the Pentecostals. Then that went along for a long time. In fact, Assemblies of God, probably the most popular one we know here around here, came out of that. Uh, other parts of the country, four square movement became part of that. Uh, I think Church of God in Christ, I'll have to ask the resident Pentecostal in the back here. Uh, but I think, I think they are a, a large group of that. And so there's, there's, there's large groups of that. 
over the years, it waxed and waned, but the, but the Pentecostal movement was a very large growing movement, but they were sort of over here. In the 1960s, the second wave came. Now, they didn't really call themselves the first and the second wave. The third wave called themselves the third wave, I guess, because they didn't have another name for it. But the second wave came, and that became uh, the, the charismatic movement, primarily of, uh, of the 60s. Now, the, the char what, is, what is charismatic? It's the, from the charismata, or the grace gifts of the Holy Spirit. This group was, while the Pentecostals were sort of their own thing, they were very separate from the mainline denominations, uh, the Charismatics were, were, were much more um, mainstream and much broader, although in time a lot of Charismatic people who believed in these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then Pentecostals believed in, in healings and miracles as well, and, but a lot of the people started in regular type churches that were not Pentecostal started to believe in a lot of these gifts of the Spirit. We call them the power gifts. So if you ever hear anybody here talk of the power gifts, we're talking about um, healings, miracles, speaking in tongues and in the interpretations of tongues. Uh, you could even say prophecy. And, 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 and so it became a bit more mainstream and it became a lot broader. So a lot more people came into the fold, but it was different than Pentecostals as it was probably uh, less restrictive. While they were always around, we began to see the proliferation of uh, what we would call uh, faith healers and also what we would refer to as the filling of the Holy Spirit. People would, would say they want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is, which is funny to me because I know a lot of people who don't believe in any of that, yet they'll pray with you before a service. Oh, Lord, fill us with your spirit. I want to go, you don't believe in that. <laughs> so so uh, unfortunately, prior to this and kind of adopting a lot of this stuff is, is where the word of faith movement came from. And, and the Word of Faith movement, uh, also known as the Health and Wealth Gospel, very, very strong, very, very, lots of people involved in it. Some people guess, estimate maybe as a third of American Christians are, are involved in it, and it's being exported out into, into the world. And, and so they became involved in that as well. So they would be very different than, than, let's say, a, a Baptist who classified themselves as a charismatic versus a word of faith person. So, so that what I mean was, see, the differences within the groups can be absolutely huge. Now, for both of these groups, there's a big emphasis on what's called the doctrine of subsequence. And even within that, they kind of disagree. And so it would be um, sort of a, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Some would even believe in a third blessing, uh, another blessing of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the Pentecostal movement, it was speaking in tongues. A lot of Pentecostals believe that if you don't speak in tongues, that you can't be saved. 
I, when I remember when I studied the book of Acts very carefully, we went through it. I, gosh, I don't know how many messages we did in the book of Acts. It was a long time ago. But it seemed like every time God saved somebody, it was different. And I'm like, I can't figure this out. And I, I made a point of reading a, a Pentecostal commentary, a charismatic commentary, a Baptist commentary, and John Calvin. And so I, I tried to keep a very balanced thing. And what it came down to was they pretty much agreed on everything until you came to speaking in tongues. And that's when the, when the big disagreement came. So some people would say that you become a Christian and then you, at a subsequent time, you speak in tongues to evidence that you're saved. Some people would say you become a Christian. At a subsequent time, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Other people would say that they both happen at the same time. Well, then we move from the 1900 or so to the 60s or so. We come into the 80s. Bad hair, interesting music. We come into the 80s, and um, there was another group called the, the Third Wave. Now, that's not very, really, not too much too appealing. So they were also known as the Sign and Wonders Movement, influenced very heavily by a, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary named Peter Wagner, but also more so probably by a fellow pastor by the name of John Wimber. Now, very interesting about John Wimber. John Wimber was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Anaheim. And so he, along with Chuck Smith and various other Calvary Chapel pastors, were very much... Uh, uh, the founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, was called the father of the Jesus movement. They were all part of that hippie movement. And, and so the Spirit of God was really, really moving. And so that somehow it went down. I don't know, really. No, I wasn't there. And, and so uh, Pastor Chuck and, and John Wimber had a discussion, and they just decided that they were going to go their separate ways. And Calvary Chapel of Anaheim became the Anaheim Vineyard. And that was the outgrowth of the vineyard movement. Uh, they often sought to, in the, in the signs and wonders movement, they sought signs, they sought wonders. They often sought the practice of power evangelism, a lot of prophecy, and evangelism would be accompanied by miracles. So they would want to demonstrate miracles. People would say, oh, there must be a God, and they would believe. Now, uh, people who would be in these categories and others, we'll get to them, a simpler way of thinking about it in a moment, describe themselves as continuationists or continualists. I'll use the term continuationists. Think of it this way. They believe that the gifts that were exhibited during New Testament times in the reading of your Bible are continuing. They are continuing. Now, they would say those spiritual gifts continue today. Many of them fit into the categories we just discussed. Some, not all, believe that you have to speak in tongues. I have a friend, I remember him telling me years ago, he was a leader in a, a Pentecostal church. I won't name his denomination. And he said that they, a very big denomination. Uh, I did name them earlier. And he said that 
uh, he, that they believe that you're, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. He brought me to his church. He said, okay, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to sing some songs. And then right over there, there's going to be an old lady over there. She's going to stand up. She's going to speak in tongues. The guy in back over there is going to interpret the tongues. And after that's done, there's going to be somebody in the far corner over there. They're going to stand up and speak in tongues. And one of those two people over there will do it. And he was right. He's a prophet, right? And, and, that's, exactly, and that's exactly what happened. Um, but I asked him, so, so you believe in your denomination that all people uh, to be saved have to speak in tongues? He said, well, yes, that's in our statement of faith. But in a, in a survey, we found out that only, I think he said 17, 20 percent, some low number of people actually speak in tongues. He said, so we don't always know what to, we don't always know what to make of it. Other hand, so we have the con continuationists over here. On the other hand, there are people who describe themselves as cessationists. What's a cessationist? All the spiritual gifts, I shouldn't say this, all of the power gifts have ceased to exist. Now, there are nasty cessationists and there are friendly cessationists. A friendly cessationist believes that the power or sign gifts, again, miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, interpreting of tongues, you could say prophecy in terms of predicting the future, they would believe that they have all ceased. So, if you're into those terms, you're into those terms. If you're not, it's okay. Let's take the terms and equate them once and again, let's remember we have to use very general terms because people feel differently within each camp the faith and practice of some people. I think that makes it a lot easier instead of trying to remember the names because when you try to figure out the similarities and differences between Pentecostals, Charismatics, and Signs and Wonder movement, you end up with a lot of overlap and a lot of conflicting things depending upon who you're studying. So, some people, when it comes to spiritual gifts, are what we call, we'll call them, they're full on, man. They are full on. They are coming to church and they are coming to service for miracles. And they claim that there's lots of miracles going on. Sadly, Tough to get any proof out of them on the miracles. And they, they tend to be um, focusing now a lot on health and wealth, which is unfortunate that those are, they've narrowed it down just to that. Um, a lot of times their services are very, very emotional. You'll see lots of dancing in the aisles. Um, Sometimes people running around with flags. Um, again, differences within all of these different realms. Some, not all, there's just tons of money talk. Just tons and tons of it. Uh, some claim miracles at every service. We had a young woman one time who came to our youth group and she said her church has miracles at every service. 
And I said, really, have you seen any of them? And, and they said, no, the pastors say we have to keep people's business private. It's just like when faith healers are asked, can you just tell us of all the, you know, present the people who've done the miracles? And they go, no. And we're like, they're like, well, present one. No, I have to keep their business private. Now, you would think if you had a miracle happen that you would be jumping around for joy telling people. I'm not saying there's no miracles, but I don't understand why they can't tell anybody. Now, there are also people that seem to tell us, missionaries tell us, that when the gospel is new in an area, they will see miracles. In America, I don't even know where we're at with that stuff sometimes. Um, while some claim miracles at every service, they, those people, my experience, tend to be very hostile against doubters. And they have what I would call an unhealthy high view of pastors. Like sometimes I meet people and I tell them I'm a pastor and they go, I can tell when you talk, it's the Holy Spirit talking. I'm like, no, it's me. <laughs> it's me. Now, others are, another group is, they're, they're not full on. They're fully open. They, they, they expect the gifts, but they openly acknowledge that, that the gifts that they're looking for are not as normal as they wish they were. A very popular view today, very popular. In fact, I think in America, it's probably the most popular, whereas outside it's not, is the view that we would call open but cautious. And those would be the people who say, I believe in the gifts, but I think much of what passes for the gifts is fake. That there's a lot of fakery and tomfoolery out there. Many of them would say that Sometimes it seems like a lot of emotion and hyper-suggestibility. Even hypnotism could be at work. Humorously, uh, sometimes call them, some of them, sometimes this group calls themselves charismatics with a seatbelt. In that sense, I identify with them. I think it's a funny way of, funny way of putting it them. Uh, they're also called aspirational charismatics. I mean, they aspire for this, but they don't want to fake it. They want to see the real deal. Now, there's a variant of open but cautious that we might call doubtful but open. They believe that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. That's very hard logic to deal with, like to, to, to go against, that, that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. The final group we talked about earlier, the cessationists believe that the power gifts have ceased once the apostolic age ended and the New Testament was closed. They are, and boy, I see it. They are very much against the highly abused term of the fuller revelation. You say, what's the fuller revelation? That is people that are going around that are saying that God gave us a new message 
that's not consistent or, or may or may not be consistent with the Bible. Now, some people in this camp would, would in the fuller revelation, would say, we might be receiving flawed messages. Other people are saying, no, we're absolutely, when the pastor talks, he is speaking the very word of God, even if it contradicts the word of God. That is very, very dangerous. That can lead to such a misuse of power and authority. Now, I would not personally consider myself to be a cessationist. It was very popular for a lot of years. Wouldn't consider myself to be that. But I do know that some people that claim the fuller revelation are really abusing their power and manipulating people. There's something else, and this is a very sensitive subject for a lot of you, and I know I tread in dangerous waters when I say this. But this idea of the fuller revelation is honestly why I could not be a Roman Catholic anymore. Most of you know I was raised Roman Catholic. I come from a clergy family. I have clergy in my family. I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I was an altar boy for four years. I did all my sacraments. But in studying the scripture and then seeing a lot of what went on, while I wouldn't put it in the fuller revelation of guys just telling outright lies, I would put it in the category of an addition to scripture that I personally was not ready to accept anymore. Now, some of you, there's people who come here that still consider themselves to be Catholic. I love you. I'm glad you're here. There are people that come to our church that consider themselves to be charismatic Catholics. They come here. I love you. I'm glad you're here. I'm just telling you where I came down on that. As we close... While, we, while continuationists and cessationists believe differently, some are friendly and some are hostile. And I will always side, even if someone's different than me. So if I'm not a, sensation, a cessationist, it means I'm what? A continuous. I will always be glad to dialogue with the friendly even if someone's way in a different camp of continuation than I am. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 14, the very beginning of the verse 1, when the Apostle Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, he says, pursue love. That's, the, that's a command. And desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love. Pursue love. No matter what you do, no matter where you come down, if you you could you, if you you your best friend is a is a just a he's a tongue talker, and you think that's such a bunch of gobbledygook. Pursue love. Pursue love. Don't divide over that. Agree on the gospel. 
how we come to saving faith by, putting, by turning from our sin to God and putting our trust in Jesus Christ and pursue spiritual gifts. There's tons of them throughout the Bible. J.B. Phillips translates it this way. Follow then the way of love while you set your heart on the gifts of the Spirit. So we can disagree lovingly. However, I would say this. When people are hurt by manipulation and when the name of the Lord is blasphemed by fuller revelation that is just clearly manipulation, that love must be firm. And don't feel bad about that. If you'd like a more balanced discussion on this, it's not that academic. It's somewhat academic. But uh, there's a book called Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views, edited by Wayne Grudem. I've read it a couple times. They're guys written by guys who are well-studied in each area. And it's one of those things, you read each guy's case, you go, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And then you read the counterpoint, and you go, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. And then you read the next guy's, and it just goes like that. Going back to verse 14 and 15, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Once again, and I didn't read all the way through to 18, the emphasis on verse 13 to 18 is on prayer, not healing. Healing is just a big topic for us in the day in which we live in. In verse 13, which we covered, James was more or less talking about praying for yourself. For 14 and 15, he's talking about the leaders in the church praying for the sick. As the passage goes on in verse 16, verse 16 he moves to all of us praying for one another. And that prayer, and all of our prayer is effective. Now, you said, wait a minute, Pastor Jim, you gave us positions on healing, miracles, and speaking in tongues, which is right. We're going to have to let the Word of God answer that for us. It's hard for us to imagine, though, how much worse sickness was in the ancient world. Things that are nothing to us would have actually killed them. Now, tonight, it's too late to go into much detail. So if you want to know more detail on this, we're going we're to fine-tooth comb these verses next week. But we begin with a sick person calling for the church leaders. Sometimes these people are called overseers. They are people called by God and ones that the church has recognized. Don't, don't forget that. Sometimes people go, well, God called me to this. But the ch church has also recognized you to care for God's flock. So who is it? Well, for many of you, it's, it's the pastors. Or it could be your home group or ministry leader. Sadly, many people are not appointed by the church, but they become self-appointed leaders whether you go here or you're somewhere else. Be careful with that. Pray for people, yes. But if you overstep your bounds, 
you may find yourself on the slow boat to ministry instead of the fast track that you might be looking for. A few things seem clear to me. And again, we're really not going to talk about the dynamics of this. If you say, and I know some people watching might say this, that you are called to pastoral ministry and you do not feel the burden to visit the sick, you might want to question your call. You might want to question your call. You see, the call to ministry is the call to, the, is the call to serve God and God's flock in love. If you're a one or two man band, particularly you're a one man band, you don't want to be part of a team. You may need to question your call or maybe it needs to be clarified. If you only feel called to help your friends, that makes you friendly. <laughs> but James has already addressed the sin of favoritism. So that's why we work hard not to play favorites. That's why it takes so long to get, go through lists of people to try and email or call or contact in emergencies and all that kind of stuff. But we'll also see in the weeks to come that, that this ministry of praying for people is a ministry for all followers of Jesus, all followers. And James is going to get pretty specific. Now, the cessationists are quick to point out that in the Bible, the miracles are more in clusters than they are in normal. And pretty tough to argue with that. If you look at the, the vast majority of miracles, the vast majority of miracles are often tied to three periods of biblical history. Not that they don't exist in other times, but there's three times when they really seem to be in motion. One is the time of Moses and the giving of the law. Another time is in the, in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the age of the prophets. Remember, those are the Elijah and Moses. They're the guys who met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The third time is the, the period of Jesus and the apostles. Now, <laughs> nobody did miracles like Jesus did. Nobody. It was just, it was incredible. You, you look in the book of Acts and you're like, oh, they're doing miracles like Jesus. There's <laughs> about 30 miracles over about 30 years. I mean, I don't know how many they did and people were bringing handkerchiefs to Paul and stuff like that. But Jesus was just, it was just incredible what he was doing. For Jesus, the miracles demonstrated a lot of different things. The miracles demonstrated the compassion of God. I mean, you watch Jesus with the miracles and you're thinking, man, God loves people. He really loves people. For Jesus, it also demonstrated who he really was. You know, Jesus said, you know, to a guy who's paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. The people, I can't believe it. Jesus says, what's easier to say to a guy, your sins are forgiven, 
or pick up your mat and walk. Now, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. But to say to a guy, pick up your mat and walk, that's, that's impossible. That's a miracle. Jesus says, just right there, he goes, just so you know, the Son of Man can forgive sins. Watch this. Pick up your mat and walk. As what? Proof of who he was. It authenticated his identity and the entirety of his ministry. I mean, really? A guy's going around saying, yeah, they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. Yeah, they're going to kill me. Those guys right over there. Yep, they're going to kill me. On the cross, that's how I'm going to die. Jews and the Gentiles, they're going to all kill me. But three days, I'll be walking around. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. That's pretty authentic. It's pretty authentic. Acts 14.3 tells us about the apostles. It says, therefore... They, that would be the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So what were the signs and wonders doing? It was authenticating their message. It was authenticating their gospel. It was authenticating that they were God's representatives. However, when I read this passage here in James, and this is part of the reason where I come down in the place where I am, it doesn't seem to me that James is speaking of a practice that will end with the apostles' ministry. It just doesn't seem that way to me. Nor, as some claim, does James indicate there will be certain people with the gift of healing in our churches. Now, now, do I think some, some doctors are healers? I do. I'll talk about that in a second. But it's interesting, 1 Corinthians 12, where a lot of this stuff comes up, people say, oh, well, I have the gift of healing. It doesn't say that. Some of our versions, again, are misleading. The actual language is the gifts, plural, of healings, plural. So if they're both plural, it certainly would appear to be that at different times, God gives different gifts of healing to different people in different circumstances. We'll talk more about that next week. It seems to me in this passage that James is talking to every local church in every age to come and not only in healing, but that prayer is every member ministry. That we're all supposed to be engaged in it together. Another thing worth mentioning is the subject of the oil. I'm trying to get some of this stuff out of the way so we can get really to it next week. Uh, often symbolic of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Here could be an aid to faith. But sadly, somehow, with only a, with only a few hundred years later, they go from baby, you got some oil. Oh, it's just some, you know, kind of, any kind of oil you got. Olive oil, whatever you got, right? Somehow it gets to, within a few hundred years, the oil had to be specially blessed and anointed by the clergy. 
A thousand years later, only a priest could do it. A few hundred years after that, it was only for the dying, something in a sacrament called extreme unction. I'm sorry. Not really. But I can't see James talking about any of that stuff here. All of that sounds like fuller revelation stuff to me. Yet, these days in other parts of the church, people are anointing anything and everything. <laughs> they, they call the man of God over to their house and they're, they're like, will you anoint things? I've had people say, will you come out and anoint my new car? I'm like, just drive safe, man. <laughs> Get it serviced. Others say, oh, you got to come to my church, man. The oil is dripping off the walls. What is that? The oil is dripping off the walls? I mean, I'm like, you mean figuratively? No, like, no, literally. During the church service, you'll see it. it it's dripping off the walls. But that's not what you, they're like, you know, like from, from, from James 5. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about praying for the sick. And he's talking about healing. Now, some will counter oil was used in the ancient world for medicinal purposes. I remember, Pastor Jim, I remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Agreed. But it's not the only medicine. Paul told Timothy, hey, take a little bit of wine for your stomach. This leads us to a very important yet overlooked aspect of God. His providential blessings. That he reserves the right to work in different ways through different means to accomplish his will for his people as we trust in him. Once again, God uses different means to accomplish his will, both the miraculous and the seemingly normal. This is something that I believe. I believe that, that humanity's thirst for knowledge is a gift from God. I believe that humanity's desire to find new cures is a gift from God. I believe that those pursuits are good and they are the result of the providential grace of God. So whenever there's some medicine that I know of that I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if I lived in Bible times, this might have killed me and I can just take it or get a shot or something like that and, and be fine. I think, oh God, your providence, your, the, the way you've helped mankind desire to survive and to, and, and to seek out new things is a wonderful thing. I, I told this story a couple of years back. I, when I first got very, very sick with my neurological disorder, I went to an Orthodox Jewish doctor and she asked me, in all sincerity, because when we met, she said to me, she says, well, I, you know, I'm an Orthodox Jew. 
Uh, I'm out of here at five on Friday, or you know, I got to be out before sundown on Fridays. I don't talk to anybody on, on I'm, I'm not on call on, on Saturdays, and so I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I told her that I was a Christian, and 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 she asked me in all sincerity. She said, "Tell me how you approach your illness." I want to know in your faith, how do you approach your illness? I, I, I said, that, that's a very simple question. Very simple. I said, first off, and, and I don't say out of respect, I, usually when I talk with Orthodox Jewish people, Hasidic Jewish people, which I knew a lot from the business world, I, I call them the Almighty because I, I've picked it up from them. I don't say the Lord, I don't say Yahweh, I don't say God, I don't say Jesus. I'll, I'll just say the Almighty. We, we, we may get to the Jesus discussion, but I'll just say, I pray that the Almighty heals me. And then before I come to see you, and even on the drive here, I pray that the Almighty gives you great wisdom in how to help me get healed. And then I go home and I do what you tell me to do. And as I'm doing what you tell me to do, I'm praying that the Almighty heals me. It's that simple for me. And it makes me feel that confident because I know the Almighty hears me. In chapter 1, James told us what? You don't have wisdom? You need to pray for wisdom. In chapter 4, he says, you guess what? You, ha- you, you, you ask, but you don't receive. You know why? Because you ask for the wrong things. You ask for your passions and your desires. You don't ask for what's right. Here James is going to teach us and tell us how to pray for the sick and then he's going to move into confessing our sins. What in the world is he doing? And then interestingly enough, he uses Elijah as an example and he says, that dude was a normal guy just like you and me. And yet his prayer was so effective. And your prayer can be too. And then he's going to turn to us and he's going to say, your role, Christian, my role, is to turn people who wander back to the truth. Our role is to save souls from death. And that's got to be something as a church we have to be so about. Telling people how to get the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's not just the pastor's job. It's every member ministry. It used to be what? Loved ones. Come and see. Come to our church. Let's pack out the place. Now what is it? Now it's go and tell because people are, some people are afraid to come. Although it's interesting to see how many people who are not church people are willing to come to church now while the church people are staying home. 
What's James doing? I honestly think he's saying to us, why don't we pray like we should? Why don't we pray like we should? Why don't we pray with bold faith and trust instead of this attitude of like, I kind of hope you'll do it, God. Like, please, pretty please. I suspect, loved ones, and I'm as guilty as this as anybody else, that we live too much in the natural realm or we live too much in the technological realm and we spend too little time in the supernatural realm. I think we might be saying prayer changes things. And when it doesn't, we say, well, prayer changes me. And I think James might challenge all of us and say, you know what? You don't believe that as much as you say you do. Because prayer hasn't changed as much things as God wants to, pray, to change. And you and I haven't changed as much as we know God wants us to change. Yet all we have to do is look at the cross and the resurrection and it shows us that all things are possible. The cross shows us by Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God hears the cry of the sinner. God cares. God wants to forgive your sins and my sins. If we are Christians, we are constantly asking God for forgiveness. If you are not a Christian tonight, ask God to heal your heart. Ask God to forgive your sins. Turn away from your sins to Jesus. Turn away from thinking you can do it yourself and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Christ of the cross. And the resurrection shows us when Jesus walked out of that tomb in a resurrected body, the resurrection shows us that God can heal, that God can bring life out of death, that the Lord Jesus Christ was no mere man. He can heal both body and soul. And he can do that for you. So if you've never put your trust in Jesus, please, please, please do that tonight. And next week we'll begin to journey into the practicalities of what James is teaching us and how not just leaders, but every person in the church can have a significant personal ministry being ministered to and ministering to others as we are all part of the flock of the Good Shepherd. Well, let's pray.